In a world where film becomes reality, two hosts are dishing out the truth, blurring the lines between meaningful and mortifying. Prepare for the audio circus that is Drunk Humanity. What's up, everyone? Cheers and welcome to Drunkumentary. I'm Sam. And I'm Nate. And we're your host for the third episode of Drunkumentary. This time, we're wrapping up part two of Evil Genius. We'll be finishing up the last two episodes of the docu-series. And Sam, you're drunk again for this episode. It feels like you've been drunk for about a month now. feel about drunk about a month now. <laughs> uh, tell, the, tell the audience, what are, you, what are you drinking on today? What were, what were you sipping? Today is bourbon straight, Love which is it. traditionally my drink of choice. A little ginger ale in there sometimes, right? To start. <laughs> Honestly, this one's a little bit of a slogger, so sit back with us. We got some really funny points, and we'll finally find out what happened on this heist. We have that. I have some, like, interlude. Wait, where did they get the pictures for everyone? Yeah, because like Brian, uh, Brian Wells's kind of looks like a headshot. It's like like school photo day at like a. <laughs> <laughs> like, have you seen Robert Panetti's where he's just like cheesy? <laughs> yeah. Robert Panetti's looking like he's making his first communion. Yeah, I like how they like they like kind of mention that Robert Panetti was in on the heist, and they just never bring him up again. Like, yeah, and they like brought up Robert Panetti's name, I guess. And but yeah, back to Brian Wells. Panetti, they see they bring him in for ten minutes, roast the shit out of him absolutely destroy his mom and then just kick him to the side yeah robert panetti he was a drug addict but so was everyone else in erie but like especially robert panetti and his mother was really close to dying she looked really bad (laughs) (laughs) clearly failing in life and health clearly bet plus i'm good for them for trying but what the fuck do you have that no one else has dude medea Tyler Perry. That's one of the richest men, richest men in the world. I, and all the best for him. I, I'm not faulting him. Good for you. I know. But at the same time, it's like you don't. They're on like the thirtieth movie. Right. That's the Fast and Furious of black movies. It's worse than that. Yeah. Exactly. It's so I bad. know there is a new Fast and Furious that kind of blows my mind. Oh, they're still rolling. Literally. <laughs> you would. You would think Paul that... Walker. <laughs> yeah. oh. <laughs> I know. You went too fast, too furious. <laughs> yeah. All right, you ready? Yes. Wait, do we want to find a door squeak noise? I was just going to do one. Okay, do one. (laughs) That's a good squeaky door there. (laughs) Sorry. Three, two. That's the squeaky door at the psych ward as Marjorie walks in, where the video conference call is set up to give her only recorded interview organized by Trey, the producer of the documentary. Marjorie starts by saying, I'm a normal woman. I shop at the mall. I rescue dogs and cats. I'm a good cook. I'm pretty normal. Marjorie agrees to share information on the bank heist and murder. And in return, she wants an attorney to discuss legal issues with regarding the murder of James Roden, which she's serving a minimum of seven years for. 
Marjorie immediately admits to shooting and killing Roden, accusing him of threatening to kill her for over 10 years. The attorney conducting the interview asks Marge why Roden's body was hidden in the garage freezer, to which she claims that it was Bill Rothstein's idea. Rothstein wanted to keep Roden's body hidden for a while until he was done with a business project. Marjorie then says, Come to find out, I think his business project was the Wells case. Before this interview, Marjorie and Trey Borzarelli had been writing each other by mail starting about a year and a half after the heist. During the same time, Marjorie wrote into the Pennsylvania State Police to bargain with them in order to be moved to a better facility. One that was closer to her property in Erie so that her lawyers were willing to travel to her. The relationship between Marge and Borzarelli seems to be emphasized persistently. But it seems like in this documentary, they took the time to actually highlight how close these two got together. Yeah, it was, it was almost kind of weird by the end. In the letter to police, she starts off by accusing her longtime friend and fishing buddy, Ken Barnes, of heinous crimes. However, she was basically just making them up. There were all rumors with absolutely no evidence. Barnes is introduced to Marjorie through fishing. I mean, Marjorie is such a catch. Yeah, what can you say? Ah, well done. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, keep, keep an eye out for my YouTube channel coming soon. In the same letter to police, she mentions that she has additional information on previous crimes too, referring to a bank heist. So naturally, the police were interested and took her up, scheduling a meeting with her. In the meeting, one of the first things she mentions is the pizza bomber slash Brian Wells incident. In her mind, she knows for a fact that Bill Rothstein was involved and believes that there was another person assisting him. Police asked her a number of times, but she didn't really have an answer. Immediately after the interview, Pennsylvania police knew they had to bring in the FBI for help. FBI agent Jerry Clark, who we were introduced to in previous episodes, was assigned to interview Marjorie Dale Armstrong. He compares the process to the science of lambs, where he checks in his badge and gun as he walks into the prison, goes down a long, dark hallway to get to Marge where she is held, and she's brought in by officers. Don't forget, this whole time, Marjorie had no eyebrows. She'd always berate the agents as soon as they came in. Fuck you guys. What are you doing here? And she would shout other expeditions to which Agent Jerry would reply and say, Marjorie, you look good today. And she'd immediately turn and say, Thank you, Jerry. How can I help you? <laughs> Marjorie, just like Bill Rothstein, was extremely calculated in the way that she spoke to investigators. She once agreed to share some information if they could move her to a closer facility in Erie, and they were actually able to arrange it, anticipating that she'd be able to provide new information on the Brian Wells case. But she didn't. She just continued to push that Bill Rothstein was the mastermind. Back to Trey Borzarelli's conversations with Marjorie. He recorded every phone conversation they had together, even carrying around a fanny pack with a small recorder in it for when they'd spontaneously talk on the phone. Most calls were just Marjorie professing her innocence. However, on one particular call, she mentions something suspicious. Immediately after the heist, Bill Rothstein had his blue van towed away for a few weeks, and so he was cleared of being involved with the Brian Wells case. Marjorie was very clear in her phone interview that she was positive Rothstein was driving that van on August 28th. 
Trey Borzarelli, the documentary producer, then remembers some footage that he had from the outside of Rothstein's house before his death when he went to ask Rothstein a few questions for the film. In this footage is the blue Astro van that was mentioned by Marjorie. Now, if you remember back to part one, Officer Lamont King, who was assigned to lead the case from the state police department, saw the footage and immediately knew that was the same van that they saw driving up to the drop-off point that Brian Wells was assigned to. Like, not too many Astro vans are operating around the town of Erie, <laughs> Pennsylvania. After Lamont King verified the van, this blew the FBI's mind, for lack of better terms, because they had completely overlooked his mention of this in the original notes. So after this, the FBI went back and reread everything over again that was recorded in relation to the incident. During this relook of everything, agents find the original recording of Rothstein's garage, which actually you could find on YouTube. It's actually kind of interesting, but it's about two hours long. In this video, they notice a diagram on the desk that looks identical to the arrows and markings found on the collar bob. After finding these markings, the FBI strongly believed that Bill Rothstein at least created the explosive device and made the scavenger hunt. But of course, they would never know for sure with Rothstein dead. And also, if you wear your overalls to the Erie, Pennsylvania McDonald's, they give you a free quarter pounder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so sorry. I think I got a stroke from that joke, honestly. <laughs> at this point, it's super obvious of Bill Rothstein's involvement to everyone watching. But what about Marjorie? She always proclaimed her innocence, and everyone believed it to some extent, until the summer of 2005, when a number of national TV shows in Erie were able to find clues on the investigation. Fox News and everyone's favorite reporter, Geraldo Rivera, report that a local Erie college professor was driving down a major highway near the PNC Bank the day of the robbery. He recalls a gold car driving down the highway on the wrong side of the road towards him at full speed. Not only that, this guy has the eyes of a hawk and he remembers the woman driving that car and said that she had a really unusual set of eyes. He later identified her as Marjorie Deal Armstrong. When Marjorie was questioned about this, she admits that she was on the highway that day in her gold car since there was witness account. However, she denied that she was ever going the wrong way on the highway and it that her being on the road had nothing to do with the bank heist, which, fair enough to some extent. After the Geraldo special on the case, the media started to belittle the investigators, including the FBI, state police, and ATF, to the point where they even told them they should become pizza delivery men if they don't know who's behind this all by now. Agents rebuttal years later in the documentary claiming the obvious. What you know and what you can prove are two different things. They need evidence and a case that would win in the court of law. And they just weren't quite there yet. In more breaking news, in 2005, a local UPS driver in Erie remembers seeing Bill Rothstein and Marjorie Dill Armstrong at the Shell gas station payphone ordering the pizzas the day of the heist. Meanwhile, my UPS driver doesn't remember the fucking package that you haven't <laughs> delivered in the last two weeks to my apartment. <laughs> He saw their faces on America's Most Wanted on TV and knew he had to reach out to the FBI immediately. This UPS driver was at the gas station that day when he noticed Rothstein in his overalls because it was hot that day. As he walked by them, he also remembers seeing Marjorie look at him with those crazy eyes and says, 
it was a sight that I didn't forget. And at, the, at this point, a lot of witness accounts are based on Marjorie's eyes, which if you saw the pictures that we posted on social media or any pictures of Marjorie Deal Armstrong in general, you'll immediately know why. Where can they find those socials? Uh, you can find those uh, Drunkumentary Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Marjorie rebuttals the sighting of her at the Shell gas station by saying, I was positioned to be up at the Shell gas station that day by Rothstein. He was meeting me because he was my co-defendant on the Roding case. You know, I'm an intelligent woman. I have the equivalent of five college degrees. <laughs> I'm not a thief. On top of all this, there were a few women who Marjorie had talked to in jail that came forward to tell FBI that she had killed Roden because he was going to release information about the planned heist. One of these ladies even wrote down notes in front of Marge. The funny thing is, this inmate had given those notes to police in 2003 during the Roden investigation. However, they were never given to FBI. Instead, police stashed them in a folder marked snitch letters and stuffed them in a random drawer. Even the FBI knows that snitches don't deserve an ounce of respect. <laughs> yeah, I'm fucking slogging along. I'm not going to lie. How many of shots in? Let's do it. Nah, maybe not. <laughs> in these inmate notes, it's revealed Marge stated Bill Rothstein was the one who built the bomb and that the asshole friend of Rothstein's, Floyd Stockton, was definitely involved in the heist. The most interesting information in these notes is that Marjorie says, It's not like we didn't measure his neck for the collar. (laughs) (laughs) After all of these accounts, Marjorie still denies being involved in the Brian Wells case at all. After discovering all of this news in 2005, the FBI requests to interview national asshole Floyd Stockton, who was thankfully in a Washington state jail at the time. He gave the police nothing during his interview, and the investigators believe his body language and demeanor was of someone who is withholding information. MDA tries to paint a picture that her doing the bombing would be insane. Like, living amongst dog shit wouldn't be the craziest thing that she's ever done. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love sleeping on piles of, piles of my dog shit, but building a bomb? Fuck that. Totally out of the realm of possibility with her. <laughs> During this whole investigation, local Erie police were in constant contact with Ken Barnes, Marjorie's longtime fishing buddy, who was a bit of a storyteller. He personally referred to himself as Cocaine Ken and was a known manipulator just like Rothstein and Marjorie. In fall of 2005, police recommended that old Cocaine Kenny get interviewed by the FBI on the Brian Wells case. Cocaine Ken is a legendary name for a shitty human being. (laughs) What would your nickname be? Narcotics Nate? (laughs) Narcotics Nate, yeah, that's not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Ken had a connection with Brian Wells through what producers of the documentary called a mutual friend who really was just a local Erie prostitute by the name of Jessica Hoopsick. Brian would drive Hoopsick to Ken's house to purchase crack cocaine. Wells and Jessica would consummate their sexual transaction, if you will. And then Brian would pay Jessica for her services, which she would in turn 
pay Cocaine Kenny for some crack. It's like a one-stop shop. It's like the Walmart of Erie, Pennsylvania. Outside of that information, Jessica Hoopsick says she knows nothing about the bank heist. Since Ken Barnes was brought up as a suspect, they get a search warrant of his home, and somehow he was worse than Marjorie and Rothstein in the hoarding department. It must be in the water in Erie. It seems like to hang out in the Pizza Bomber gang, you need a house filled with garbage. <laughs> and after the search of Cocaine K's house, they were found to be nothing that linked him to the Brian Wells incident. And of course, he denied having any involvement. Ken did reveal, though, that Marjorie solicited him to do the bank robbery. On top of that, and to make matters worse, Marjorie had asked him to murder her father, who she thought was wasting her inheritance on charitable donations. The money from the bank robbery was going to be used to pay Ken for the hit of her father, but he claims he was never going to go through with the murder, of course. The film cuts the footage of Trey, the producer of the documentary, and Marjorie's father, Harold Deal, when they ask him how he feels about the FBI believing that the whole bank heist motive was to have him killed. He responds and says, yeah, I heard the rumors that they were going to have me killed because she knew I had some money, but she's not even in my will because of that. Harold Deal was an aluminum siding salesman his whole career, and Marjorie's mother was a school teacher. Growing up, Marjorie's parents always supported her a lot, even buying her two homes in Erie and providing her with money when she was out of work. But when she started to get in trouble with the law, it all stopped. Back at the investigation, FBI agent Jerry and his colleagues decided to take Marjorie out of the prison ward and drive them around Erie to visit sites. At this point, Marjorie was just ecstatic to be out of jail. So she asked them to grab food from all types of places and even pick up some pretzels and Diet Cokes to snack on while cruising around. During this drive around, Marge tells them that she specifically remembers Rothstein asking for two kitchen timers before the bank heist happened. This is significant because even though the media knew and released information about the explosive device, they were never told that two timers were involved. This is only something that she would know if she was involved in the heist. After letting this information slip during snack time, she immediately says that she's done with the interview and asks them to take her back to the prison. Up to this point, Marjorie's alibi from being involved in the crime was that she had plenty of money. Why would she rob a bank? And to her credit, she was kind of bawling and eerie. She had money from lawsuits, her parents, and even government aid. However, Marjorie then revealed in the documentary that cocaine Ken Barnes and her got into a fight in 2003 about money she owed him that she refused to pay back. So Ken Barnes, being the degenerate he is, did the next logical thing and asked his friends to rob her. They took over $100,000 from Marjorie's home, and Ken even admitted to it later, but he was never prosecuted. At the end of episode three, we found out that Ken and Marjorie are no longer talking to each other at all, which helped immensely in the investigation because they couldn't line up their stories together. It was a matter of who would cave first, and in December of 2005, Ken Barnes confessed to knowing the entire scheme, blowing the case wide open. 
Episode four of Evil Genius is rightfully so called The Confessions. As we <laughs> as we finally start pointing start up, start up. to who did it and what. I, I was going to keep it, dude. I love it. <laughs> I was going to roll with it. Episode four of Evil Genius is rightfully so called The Confessions. As we can finally start pointing to who did what. The episode starts with footage of Ken Barnes clearly showing his age and heavy cocaine use as he's brought out by FBI agents to the prison he's assigned to. Ken Barnes looks like what a human would look like on the popcorn setting in a microwave. Ken Barnes looks like the overweight janitor at a school that's not allowed to have him work the day shift. <laughs> Please, I've got, we're going to post a picture of Ken Barnes on the socials. If you have any good bits about Ken Barnes, please email us at drunkumentarypodcast at gmail. Ken Barnes gave the FBI a lot of information during his confession, letting him know that there was a pre-heist meeting at Rothstein's house the day before the robbery to discuss the roles of each person. It was revealed that the following members were involved in the pre-heist meeting. Ken Barnes, of course. Bill sleeps in his overalls, Rothstein. Marjorie Duo Armstrong. National scumbag, Floyd Stockton. Robert Panetti, the co-worker at Mamma Mia's Pizza, who overdosed days after the heist. And last but not least, Brian Wells, concluding that he was definitely involved in the heist. Or so we think. Unfortunately, Ken Barnes' confession was never recorded by the FBI to keep the vibe in the interview room right. So producers of the documentary reached out to Ken, and he had no problem retelling the confession. Ken's role was to be a lookout for the heist. So on the day of August 28, 2003, Marjorie picked him up, and they headed to the Shell gas station where Bill Rothstein and Marjorie put in the call for the pizzas. They met Brian Wells over at the Brandon Radio Tower where he delivered the pizzas, And he started to get cold feet about the robbery, according to Ken. He started to run before Ken Barnes tackled him, roughed him up a little bit, and told him to stop being a pussy. Bill Rothstein then shot a bullet off in the air to scare him. Before hitting him down, this douchebag Floyd Stockton put the collar bomb on him. As Brian Wells is in the bank, the others watch as the whole thing go down from afar with binoculars. As the police start to roll in, They leave and they all meet at Bill Rothstein's house, switch vehicles, and then this is when Marjorie decided to drive down the wrong side of the highway for whatever reason, probably going to meet up with Brian Wells, who would hopefully be at the drop-off point. This whole time, no one except for Marjorie and Bill Rothstein knew that the bomb was real. It was supposed to be fake as far as everyone knew. However, the two of them must decide at one point to kill Brian Wells. With one confession in hand, next investigators go back to the Washington State Prison that held human ball sack Floyd Stockton, who was the man claimed to have hit the bomb around Brian Wells' neck. Immediately, Stockton's attorney got him an amazing plea deal that granted him immunity if he testified against Marjorie in court. He did an entire walkthrough with FBI of how the situation went down at the tower. The day of the crime... He was told by Rothstein to put the collar bomb around Brian's neck. After the struggle to put the collar bomb on Brian, he started walking away from the site immediately, no longer wanting to be involved in the situation. He states, "Um, I'm just a convicted child abuser. No one would care if I died back here. And he's kind of got a point. 
after the confessions of former cocaine Ken Barnes and fuck all Floyd Stockton, police gained a ton of information of what happened, but still didn't know who the mastermind was. Do you have any, you have any names for Floyd Stockton, Sam? Fuck boy, Floyd Stockton. <laughs> that almost gives him too much credit. It's like he's just going around like crushing. Like fuck, fuck boy, Floyd Stockton. He's got like skinny jeans and Jordans on. Fuckhead, Floyd Stockton. <laughs> it's just hard not to say fuck and Floyd in the same sentence, you know? They also didn't know what Robert Panetti's role was in the crime. The co-worker who overdosed days after the heist. Or how Brian Wells even got recruited to be part of his own death after the robbery. On July 9, 2007, roughly four years after the heist, it becomes public news that Brian Wells was involved in the heist and, in turn, his own death. During the press conference announcement by the Attorney General, the family of Brian Wells were there heckling him while he was on stage. One media member after the press conference said, Well, I'll tell you what, Larry, I've never seen anything like it in all my years of reporting. Outside of the confessions... The only real evidence FBI had that Brian Wells was involved is that he was seen by a witness at Rothstein's house the day before the heist. As he was backing out of the driveway, the witness had to slam on his brakes in order not to hit Brian. On July 9, 2007, roughly four years after the heist, it becomes public news that Brian Wells was involved in the bank robbery and in turn his own death. Outside of the confessions, the only real evidence FBI had that Brian Wells was involved is that he had been seen by a witness at Rothstein's house the day before the heist. As he was backing out of the driveway, the witness had to slam on his brakes in order not to hit Brian, which also another great set of eyes here by this guy, how he remembers Brian's face as he almost ran into him. I mean, pretty incredible stuff. There was a real division between the investigators and the public at this point. On top of that, because Brian Wells was believed to be involved, the law states that the prime suspects, notably Marjorie Deal Armstrong, could not receive the death penalty. What a fucking weird loophole that is. Upon Marjorie's trial for being a co-conspirator in the bank heist, she decided not to take a plea deal and instead fight the accusations. Doctors had to evaluate Marjorie to see if she was mentally competent enough to assist in her own defense. You know, since she had no eyebrows and numerous mental illness diagnoses. <laughs> in easily my favorite part of the docuseries, the producers interview a former attorney of Marjorie's who defended her for the first time she killed her boyfriend. He was asked what it was like to defend Marge and states, She was my punishment on earth. She'd be talking about one thing, and then she'd start talking about birds. Or God knows what. She had to brush her teeth 32 times a day. Not 31. Not 33. <laughs> the former attorney goes on to state that she was in and out of mental institutions constantly. The bank heist and death of Brian Wells should have never happened because Marjorie should have been confined a long time ago. After months of medication and mental health treatment, judges finally declare Marjorie competent, and the date is set for what is known as Erie's trial of the century. In more good news for Marjorie, asshole Floyd Stockton, who agrees to testify against Marjorie in order to get immunity. Wait, I'm sorry. Can we go back? Can you call him asshat Floyd Stockton? Asshat? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. In more good news for Marjorie, asshat Floyd Stockton, 
who agreed to testify against Marjorie in order to get immunity, was set to have heart surgery and was not going to be present at the trial. The date is October 15th, 2010, over seven years after the heist, and it's the first day of Marjorie's trial. The producers of the documentary were asked by Marjorie to come to her trial and support her after their conversations for the last six plus years. And being the good friend that he is, he decides to drive the Erie and show face. Initially, Trey, the producer, sits on the side of the prosecution. Marjorie turns around and immediately notices this and blurts out, Hey, Trey, what you doing on that side? Come over here. <laughs> During the trial, numerous witnesses took the stand to defend Mar against Marjorie, including Jessica Hoopsick or Brian's favorite prostitute, who was believed to have a lot more knowledge than she initially presented. She was vague in her answers on the stand. However, after the day of questioning during the trial, the documentary producers caught up with her and asked for a private interview for the film. Hoopsick shows up to court like an H&M version of Pretty Woman. <laughs> <laughs> she initially agreed, but then never showed up. I love that you and I have the same actual note where Hoopsick signs off each Nokia text message with Number one white girl. <laughs> yeah, that, that's just like her text signature on every single message. Three, she got three Michelin stars in being in white girl. How do you think that competition goes down? It's just who can twerk the worst. <laughs> During the second half of the trial, it's time for Marjorie to take the stand. And for the first time, jurors got to hear her as a human being after the relentless evidence against her during the first half of the trial. She spoke about her abusive past and even broke down in tears, which actually started to help her shift the perspective of the jury. That being said, after 10 days of the trial, Marjorie Deal Armstrong is found guilty on all counts, specifically conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, armed bank robbery in which resulted in death, and the use of a destructive device in furtherance of violent crime. Naturally, Marjorie is upset with the verdict, and after the trial, she turns to her lawyer immediately and says, You didn't do your job. <laughs> her sentencing was set for February, roughly three months after the trial. During the sentencing, the judge addresses the courtroom. The defendant has a long history of mental illness, but there are people with these conditions that do not solicit to kill their father or seal a man's fate by strapping a ticking bomb to his neck. Marjorie was sentenced to life in prison plus 30. I love how they always throw on extra years to life. And I, I always picture them just throwing a dead body into a jail cell for, what, 30 <laughs> years after the fact that they're dead? Just for safekeeping? No, they're just like, yeah, there's still meat on the bones. Let's leave the, let's leave the skeleton in there a little longer. The primary question still in the minds of everyone after the trial was... What exactly was Brian Wells' level of involvement in the incident? Was he an active participant, or was he just played by these people? In the summer of 2013, the producer of the documentary had built up such a strong relationship with Marjorie this whole time that he felt now was the time to ask if Brian Wells participated in the heist. Marjorie was adamant that Brian was directly involved, so much so that the producer and Marjorie got into a little bit of a fight about Brian Wells' culpability. 
was she just saying this to keep her from possibly getting the death penalty? Or was it actually true? Shortly after this fight, Jessica Hoopsick, or number one white girl, is admitted into the same prison as Marjorie and starts talking shit about Marge. This leads to a confrontation where reportedly Marjorie and her prison goons approach Hoopsick and tell her to cut the shit. Now knowing where Hoopsick is, the documentary producers try to reach out to her again for an interview for the film, to which this time she agrees and actually shows up. Hoopsick starts the interview by letting filmmakers know Brian was innocent and that he was a good guy, alluding to a special connection that the two of them had. Hoopsick agrees to an interview only in the backseat of a car, which is clearly where she's most comfortable. (laughs) Oh man, that's sad but true. (laughs) Brian Wells and Hoopsick had more than just a customer-client relationship. It was actually somewhat romantic. At the end of the documentary, we find out that Jessica Hoopsick actually gave birth to a child a few months after the heist and believed that Brian Wells was the father. And then we get Jessica Hoopsick's confession. One day, when she went to cocaine Ken Barnes' house, him and a few friends were plotting a bank robbery and wanted Hoopsick to find someone to rob the bank for them. Someone that they could scare into doing it and wouldn't call the cops. They stressed that the bomb wasn't real and offered Hoopsick $5,000 to find someone. So naturally, she got high for about three days and then called Ken, giving up Brian Wells, who she thought was easy to persuade. Hoopsick gave them Brian Wells' work schedule and they planned the heist for the rest of the summer. When Hoopsick was asked about Brian possibly being at the pre-heist meeting, She says that she spent a number of hours with him that day before the heist and was pretty positive that he wasn't at the meeting. The producers reveal this information to Ken Barnes, who then actually reveals that Brian had no idea this was going to happen at all. Then they reach out to Marjorie, still in jail, to finally let them know that they know the real deal. Brian had no involvement in the heist whatsoever. They had actually murdered him. Of course, Marjorie denied it, and she brought that to the grave. On April 4th, 2017, Marjorie Deal Armstrong died of breast cancer and was buried in an unmarked grave right by the mental facility that she was incarcerated in in Texas. The end of the documentary goes deep into Rothstein and Marjorie's connection, even mentioning some weird-ass symbolic poem that Rothstein earmarked in a book and his belongings when he died. One really cool point that the documentary mentions is that Rothstein was the only guy that dated Marjorie Armstrong who lived. Every other guy that dated her died either right after or during their relationship. I guess Rothstein's just built different. It's got to be built into the overalls. The last scene in the documentary is live footage of Brian Wells' death, showing the actual explosion of the device and the carnage for the first time in the documentary. To this date, sadly, no one has been convicted of the murder of Brian Wells. And that's Evil Genius Part 2. Review, review, review. Sam, what, what would you give Evil Genius? The documentary takes aim at an insane story that grabs national attention. It drills down on some of the underlying facts behind the case, including the mental health and the depravacy behind the actions that we see play themselves in the public light. While clarity is difficult to attain, the producers and the director attempts to explain the twists and turns through their own corkboard unfolding in front of the audience. The FBI and the police seem to have their story, and fitting their evidence towards that seems to be their top priority. Brian Wells 
in my opinion, as well as the director's, should be looked at as an innocent bystander in the plot. Mm -hmm. Whether you believe he's involved or not, the true evil genius here is Marge. But not for just the pizza bombing case. She knew how to gain the legal system hmm. and her social network into obtaining anything that she wished for, which is the lowest level of genius intelligence. MDA leaves a mixed legacy, but really it comes across as a waste of genius, a menace to society that took on a truly bitter and cold form. This film does its best in making clear a story of murky details. And yes, sometimes it drags its story along. Where you kind of understand the story, <laughs> but you can also appreciate some of the weird details behind how we get there. It's a wild tale to be a part of, but bring your pillow for a nap in between. <laughs> I give this one 6.5 out of 10. Mamma Mia's pizzas. I actually give it a 6 Mamma Mia's pizza out of 10. I'll say I agree with you on every front. You know, I think I love that the documentary talked a lot about mental health, how it affected Marjorie, but at the same time, she was just a crazy person who wanted to see people hurt and liked manipulating people. But yes, it dragged on. I mean, after episode two, you know who did it. And the last few episodes are just the minute details and really just a introspective into Cocaine Ken Barnes, which I appreciated, but every other part of it, could have done without. And also Floyd Stockton just made me not want to listen to the last few episodes, but it was a joy to go through. I'll give it, once again, six Mamma Mia pieces out of 10. What documentaries would you say this is comparable to? Yeah, I'd say another Netflix docuseries would be The Staircase. Uh, that's another spouse murder mystery. And, you know, Marjorie was obviously known for killing her boyfriends and husbands. So I think that's a pretty relevant one. Also a docuseries, multiple episodes. I'd say listeners definitely tune into that if you liked Evil Genius. A similar documentary on my recommendation is The Jinx. Hmm. Tells the story, though, of a pretty smart and affluent murderer who uses their notoriety and their money to cover up their crimes. And what? now it's time for some fast facts, fast facts, fast facts. Uh, okay, go switch your fast facts. Evil Genius was inspired by Paradise Lost and the West Memphis Three. Faster. Porzarelli has been working on this case for at least 15 years. Faster. The producers are absolutely convinced that Marjorie Deal Armstrong was the mastermind behind the plot. Zoo. Showing Wells' public execution was not malintended according to Barbara Schroeder, one of the producers. It was shown because of how public and graphic his actual death was. And according to GoEerie.com, her body is being fought over in court by Martin Marvin, who claims he had a Quaker marriage to Marjorie Deal Armstrong. And those are our fast facts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Drunkumentary. Make sure to send any questions or ideas to us at drunkumentarypodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Drunkumentary Podcast. That's it. So...